Hello and welcome to the IT Governance Podcast for Friday the 25th of November 2022. Later on, Cami will be talking to IT Governance Publishing's author of the month, Professor Julie Meehan, about the ethical and security implications of AI. But first, here's the news. We all know that ransomware remains a huge problem, but it's difficult to calculate the scale of the threat. However, a warning issued by the FBI, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and the Department of Health and Human Services in the United States gives an indication of how lucrative ransomware can be for criminals and why they remain motivated to persist with it. According to the Joint Cybersecurity Advisory, Hive ransomware has netted attackers approximately 100 million US dollars in ransom payments over the past 18 months. Hive is a ransomware as a service model used by various threat actors to target a wide range of businesses and critical infrastructure sectors, including government facilities, communications, critical manufacturing, information technology, and especially healthcare and public health. As with most malware, Hive is commonly spread via phishing emails with malicious attachments, as well as by exploiting unpatched security vulnerabilities. And, as is now common, Hive uses a double extortion method to threaten its victims. Their data is exfiltrated before being encrypted, so if the victims don't pay the ransom to decrypt it, it's leaked on the dark web on the HiveLeaks Tor site. Organisations are urged to prepare for cyber incidents such as this by, among other precautions, reviewing the security of third parties, implementing listing policies for applications and remote access that only allow systems to execute known and permitted programmes, documenting and monitoring external remote connections, implementing a recovery plan, enforcing strong passwords and deploying phishing-resistant multi-factor authentication, regularly reviewing accounts and using access controls, segmenting networks and using antivirus and monitoring tools tools to detect abnormal and malicious activity. Talking of double extortion, you'll remember from our last podcast that Australia's largest health insurer, Medibank, suffered a ransomware attack that potentially compromised the personal data of its 9.7 million customers. After Medibank refused to pay the 15 million Australian dollar ransom in line with industry best practice, the attackers, believed to be associated with the Russian R-Evil ransomware organisation, began to leak Medibank's customer data online. According to The Guardian, the hacker group posted a fifth data dump last Sunday containing 1,500 records related to claims on chronic conditions such as heart disease, as well as the patient details of people with cancer, dementia, mental health conditions and infections. However, the dark web blog went offline between Monday and Tuesday, Australian time. The Australian Federal Police declined to comment. However, there has inevitably been speculation that the blog's disappearance can be linked to a statement issued on the 12th of November by the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Signals Directorate, announcing an operation to investigate, target and disrupt cybercriminal syndicates with a priority on ransomware threat groups. Meanwhile, in Canada, a ransomware group has shut down municipal services in Westmount, Quebec, Claude Vallier, Westmount's head of IT, is quoted in La Presse, a local news agency, as saying, We know we have encrypted servers, but we don't know who attacked us. We're still investigating the infected servers, but we've not had any communication with anyone. According to GovInfo Security, the Lockbit 3.0 group has claimed responsibility and given the city until the 4th of December to make an undisclosed ransomware payment. Westmount's mayor, Christina M. Smith, said... Cyber attacks are unfortunately becoming more widespread and sophisticated in our society, and despite all the measures we're trying to put in place, public administrations are not immune to this sad reality. I want to tell all West Mountains that our team are working seriously and diligently to remedy this situation, and we will keep you informed.
Here in the UK, Suffolk Police has apologised after four years' worth of data related to sexual offences and offences that occurred in schools was accidentally published on its website. The data, contained in an Excel spreadsheet within a reply to a Freedom of Information request, was discovered by a member of the public on the 7th of November. Around 2-3% to of the published investigations included information which could lead to someone being identified. In most cases, no personal data was present, the statement said. It's not yet known how many people accessed the spreadsheet which related to offences that were reported between the 1st of April 2015 and the 31st of March 2019. Assistant Chief Constable Eamon Bridger said, Suffolk Constabulary is extremely sorry for the data breach and the anxiety this unintentional disclosure of personal information would have caused. We recognise and sincerely regret the additional concern this incident will have caused for victims of crime that we're duty-bound to protect. We've now fully removed the document from public circulation and will continue to proactively seek to minimise any risk of the release of this data may have had. We're committed to making sure we do everything we can to avoid a similar incident happening in the future and have already implemented changes that will ensure these circumstances do not happen again. That was the news. Now, machine learning and artificial intelligence are becoming increasingly prevalent in all walks of life, but have we really considered the ethical implications of allowing important decisions to be made by algorithms? Earlier, Cammy spoke to Professor Julie Meehan about her new book, Artificial Intelligence, Ethical, Social and Security Impacts for the Present and the Future. Welcome to the IT Governance Podcast. It is amazing to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Cameron. I am delighted to be here. So just for our listeners, we're talking to Professor Julie uh, Meehan and basically focusing on her book, Artificial Intelligence, Ethical, Social and Security Impacts for the Present and for the Future. So, Julie, if you don't mind, I'm just going to literally just throw you into the deep end and dive straight into it. Um, you say that AI is a technology that is, in a very subtle but unmistakable way, it's exerting an ever-increasing influence over our lives, and the more we use it, the more AI is altering our existence. Um, I suppose my kind of first question is, can you dive a little bit more into that? Like, what ways do you think people are being manipulated by AI, by AI that they haven't even potentially even considered? Well, first off, let me start the conversation by saying what is AI or artificial intelligence? And, and we are using the term artificial intelligence as sort of an overarching concept. But there are so many types of artificial intelligence ranging from very simple artificial intelligence that you might find in a home device to very complex artificial intelligence that are driving some of the more complex engines that we use on a daily basis. Yes. People yeah. talk about AI now as being ubiquitous. And when we say ubiquitous, that means you find it in almost every corner of your lives. And we are seeing it whether we're using, uh, as, as you mentioned later on, whether we're using um, our smart device and talking to Alexa or Siri, uh, whether we are looking at our camera devices that are checking the security of our homes, whether we're making financial decisions, health decisions, uh, AI is actually showing up everywhere. And one of the concerns that I see about uh, how it is manipulating us is that we actually are being influenced by AI in very subtle and actually unknown ways. So for example, when you are using a search engine and you do a search on a particular topic, and let's say it might be 
for lack of a better way to put it, the recent elections in the United States. Yeah. Your search engine is going to feed you information that is based on what it thinks you want to hear. So you are getting what they call, you're in a bubble, you're in an information bubble. You only see things, it's a confirmation bias that you that you already have shown a predisposition to want to hear. Yes. And so over time, AI is formulating our environment, our information environment in such a way that we are being fed information that's already pre-digested for us. Mm. And in that sense, it actually does have a manipulative effect on us that we actually don't even realize is occurring in the background. Uh, we, um, we have this fear of AI too. Um, we think of AI as being some sort of, well, do you remember the movie 2001 Space Odyssey? I don't know if you go back that far. I, I, I do know it, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, there was an AI in this movie called HAL, and that was a short for what you call a holistically programmed algorithmic computer. Well, HAL's yeah. mission was to keep the mission, the entire mission, the space mission alive. Well, as it started showing defects in the space mission, um, HAL actually became unstable, and he attacked and killed three crew members to avoid being disconnected. And so he wasn't behaving out of malice. He was merely acting on programmed instructions. Yeah. The, the, the reason I bring this up is because our AI is also acting on programmed instructions. The problem is that the users of AI often don't know what these instructions are, the background of the people who developed these instructions, the training data that was fed into the AI, and as a consequence, we don't fully understand the implications of this technology and actually why it does what it does all the time. Um, so I don't know if this is the long way around, but when I look at AI and people being manipulated, I think of that largely in the information sphere. Well, that's the thing. It's one of those things that is so complicated, actually, when you think about it. But at the end of the day, it's like you have no you do have control over, I don't know how to sort of phrase this, but you do have control over the data that's going into this algorithm, but how that's outputted, it's just, I don't know, it just, I mean, it blows my tiny brain, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, if you would ask the statisticians and the programmers and the developers, they would say it's blowing their rather large brains. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I mean, some of those things you were saying about kind of, you know, social media and how we're being manipulated. So um, my um, husband and I decided to be uh, really good and we were going to do a vegetarian month for a month. And I have found it so hard because I, I, don't know, I, I just clearly love eating meat. And I clicked on one video that was just basically showing, I don't know, someone making a burger. And this was on Facebook. And um, I suddenly got flooded with like, an absolute tidal wave of cooking meat things. And I was just a little bit like, how How do you know? How, how do you know this is what I'm craving? It's just terrifying. It's, terrifying. <laughs> it's like, I, I use it's my brain. <laughs> you know, Cammy, this is actually a, a very typical example. And when I'm working with my students, one of the things, this is one of the things they talk about the most. They tell me sometimes, um, 
I think about something. I don't even put it on a piece of paper or look at it on the web, but I swear <laughs> an advertisement shows up on Facebook or on my Google front page or on Amazon. And they said, we have no idea where it's coming from. And it, it, it's for some people, they love it. But I would say for the majority of people, they find it kind of creepy. And, um, yes. <laughs> But it does influence us. Especially it when you is. work in cybersecurity and data privacy, you're like, like my, my, my husband doesn't work in that. So he's just like, oh, that's just kind of how it works. And I'm like, no, this is terrifying. This is freaky. Like, how? <laughs> well, and, and truth, we, we, privacy is a thing of the past, by the way. I mean, I think that we can give up on that concept. I know <laughs> the, the European Union has marvelous laws in the GDPR. The U.S. is far behind you in that regard. Mm. But in terms of privacy, I think the, the first with social media and our, our own selection of exposing ourselves to the world, but how AI processes and deals with that information once we give it to them, I think that we can pretty much tie up the, and put a bow on the package and, and send off our privacy because I don't believe we really have it any longer. And AI is one of the prime reasons we don't. Um, that actually leads me like really nicely on to like my next question, actually, which is kind of like, what are some of the biggest ethical concerns surrounding AI? And clearly privacy is one, potentially. Privacy is a huge one. Um, but I would say, the I would, I would actually call the biggest ethical concerns that we have with AI, and I will put it in one word, it's the humans. The humans. And, and part of the reason is humans themselves, we really don't even understand ourselves what, we, we subconsciously have morals and we subconsciously have ethics and we have laws that try to reflect those. Mm. But how often do you actually sit down and think about, okay, what are all the things that comprise my ethical foundations? And how could I put that into an algorithm that would be understood by a machine? And so in the, the biggest concern that I have in terms of AI and ethics is basically the lack of human understanding of their own ethical foundations. Mm. And unfortunately, there's this thing called bias. Yeah. And every one of us, whether we claim it or not, we are biased. Um, yes. um, I'm, I'm, I am a meat eater and my bias, you mentioned vegetarians, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And my bias against vegetarians or vice versa. So if I create a dietary AI to present, to create menus for people, yeah. is it going to be skewed towards vegetarianism or is it going to be skewed towards people who eat meat? You don't know because you may have that unconscious bias that you feed into the algorithm, training algorithm. So I think one of the biggest problems that I see in ethics and AI is the inability of humans to even be able to define what their own morals and ethics are and how these can be put into zeros and ones into binary algorithms that then can be processed without prejudice by yeah, I, artificial I, I, intelligence. I totally get that because I mean I feel like we're talking massive about my diet at the moment but back yeah. to like when we were doing um, our vegetarian month we tried to go out for dinner and um to look look up vegetarian restaurants and we couldn't really actually find anywhere that had a really good vegetarian selection you had to really really like narrow down on it and I live in London so you know we are supposedly one of like you know 
the most culinary wise like you know experienced cities on the planet and it was really yes. hard and I was like if, if a human can't even do this if a human can't even think about this and you're, the human is supposed to be teaching the machine. How the hell is a machine supposed to learn this? So if you are putting that bias in, if you're always going to be weighted towards one side, then yes. yeah, th th there's always going to be that mas that machine bias, if you know what I mean. There absolutely will. You know, in the US, we have a multitude of health systems, but I'm going to use the UK as an example for you have the national health system, right? Yes. Yeah. And I will tell you that that national health system and a lot of the health decisions that are made are made by an AI algorithm. Yes. Because at okay. some point in time, they're feeding all this data in about various health conditions and various what gets paid and what doesn't get paid and to what degree and when and so forth and so on. So I would ask the question, if you yeah. are having this algorithm running something like a national health system, what at some point in time it says a baby's life is more important than that of an elderly person or oh should a known alcoholic receive life-saving surgery mm. um, because they're going to still be an alcoholic or even in a different context are people of color more likely to commit crime um an yeah. interesting thing we don't know what happens once those algorithms and the training data is fed to the ai engine so I will tell you, back in about 10 years ago in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles police force felt that they needed to be more predictive about crime. Mm -hmm. And so they bought an artificial intelligence software and they said, you know, we can actually use this to be more predictive about crime. And they had this software created. It was working wonderfully. But what happened was is the AI learned its own biases just based on the data it was being fed. Gosh, yeah. And so learned it, it became actually very focused on people of color or people of other ethnicities being more likely to exhibit criminal behavior than people of Caucasian descent or of Asian descent. And as a result, they were giving the police clues to go after people who had never committed a crime would never even think of committing a crime, but simply because the AI had learned over time from various data that it's siphoned from trainers and also from going out itself into the internet and retrieving more data that people of color or other ethnicities are more likely to commit crimes. And so we're going to feed that back to the law enforcement. In the end, Los Angeles had to get rid of the software program. And I can totally see that because I mean that's slightly terrifying thinking that a machine that suddenly learns its own mind is going out and having all this prejudice against a, a race and you you know you have no control over that so I mean do you think we can ever get to a stage where we can have ethical AI without human intervention? Oh that is a big question and I think at this time no we can't um, because you also have to understand that, that being ethical is also a very human trait. Yeah. It's humans that feel empathy. It's humans that feel sympathy. Um, and it's humans that feel love, hate, a number of other emotions that all influence our ethical decisions. Mm. And until we can determine how to create this sort of empathy or these human features in an AI, I don't think that we will we'll ever have an AI that is a replica of a human or that is ethical in and of itself. Um, 
Are, are you a Star Trek fan? By any chance? Oh, sorry, sorry. So, so, so that again? Are, are you by any chance a Star Trek fan? I I am not, but I do know several people that are. <laughs> okay. Well, in 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 one of the Star Trek episodes of Star Trek: The Next Generation, there is a an android, a humanoid AI mm-hmm. named Data. Okay. And in this in this episode, it's called the Meaning of a Man. Um, now, bear in mind, this is three thousand years into the future, so a lot of things have occurred in the meantime. But <laughs> um, a scientist comes along, wants to take Data apart to figure out why he works the way he works. And Data doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to be taken apart because he feels that over time, he has gained things that are essentially human, like a sense of humor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And 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 self awareness. I I know that I exist, which is an inherently human characteristics. I don't think AI today doesn't know that it exists, and animals to a certain extent don't really know that they exist on a cognitive level. But this this humanoid android, a data, he actually presented the argument <clears throat> that once an entity attains and knowledge of its own existence, a self-awareness, it it then becomes more human. And at that point in time, that's where it starts to develop an ethical foundation. This is like a bit of an out there question. So do you reckon we could ever actually teach AI like to love and to feel and to have a a presence of mind that humans have? (sighs) Or was that 3,000 years into the future? 3,000 years in the future, no. I would say yes yes and no. I mean, I think scientists can break down the overt expressions of love, for example. Mm. Um, Could could my PC that always acts up ever learn to love me? (laughs) And not ever act up. (laughs) (laughs) No one will ever learn to love your PC. But this (laughs) But well, then I want to throw it out the window at some point. <laughs> no, um, there are a lot of experiments going, particularly in, 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 in Japan and other countries that are trying to actually create very humanoid, human-like, as far as they can to, with our technology of today, yeah. uh, create human-like uh, android or robotic entities that actually have facial expressions. Now, they what they do is, and this is how you train in artificial intelligence is you will collect thousands upon thousands of pictures, for example, of different human expressions. I love you. I hate you. I'm angry. I'm happy. Mm. And they feed these expressions into the AI and the AI can say, oh, an uptilted mouth means I'm smiling. So I'm happy. Uh, water falling from what we think are some of these eyeball things in the human's face. Yeah. That means I'm sad. Um, if I get a dreamy look in my eye, I may be showing that I love someone. Yeah. These This can be trained, but it's not like the AI actually feels it. Yeah, so I suppose that is the, the difference, isn't it? Like you can tell a machine this is, but does, it, does a machine even feel? It's just more a case of you're telling it, this is what it is. It's not a, a feeling, like a, a human feels a feeling, if that makes sense. Correctly, that that is actually it. 
we can teach them that these are exhibits of certain emotions, mm. but we can't teach them to feel that emotion. One of the most common things that human feels that I can't even think of a way that one would train an eye is empathy. Yes, because uh, like a, a machine will look at something as a logical yes, no answer, whereas a human, there's right. so, so much more to it than that. There's a lot more to it than that. Um, and so can we train an AI to be ethical? Only as far as the humans have the ethics that they're that themselves. Mm. Mm. Um, and I suppose AI has now gone just, you know, beyond theory recommending or sort of local restaurants and nowadays it's got the potential to do so much more than that like you know it can drive cars it can deploy drones it can do so much like is it getting to a stage where i mean obviously we've said that you know they can't have empathy but could they potentially could the robots potentially take over the world and do human jobs and just essentially Bye-bye as a species, humans, robots are here forever. <laughs> I mean, in, in many ways, they already have, um, particularly in the manufacturing field. I mean, we see endless lines of AI-powered robots building our cars, our televisions, and so much more. Um, try to call your, <laughs> I think of this all the time, uh, we have a, a cable company, our local cable company, and when our cable goes out, we have to call them and say, you know, what's wrong with our cable? And when we get them on the phone, we have an AI robot that answers the phone and, and it drives us through endless cycles of press one if you want this and press two if you like that and answer yes or no, is your cable out, is it in, have you plugged it into the wall, yes or no. Um, you go through this seamless, seemingly endless selection, that's an AI driven. Um, so most of our answering services are being taken over by AI. Um, we have AI in our airplanes, uh, which is all sometimes a frightening thought. Um, oh, don't and tell it, me that. Do not tell me that. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> I know, but it, we have AI flying our planes. Um, what do you think autopilot is? It really is an, an artificial intelligence that's driving the plane. Oh, God. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you asked about drones. Um, it's That gets into a whole different category of ethics, and that is the ethics of if do we in the ethics of human existence and the ethics of how we as humans feel about killing other humans or destroying property of other humans it's probably much easier to send a drone in to execute a strike mm. than it is to do that as in a face-to-face well, situation. It's, it, it, it's one of those things where you have like the question in like psychology where it's a case of um, you, you have the two train tracks and on one there's a toddler and on the other track there's six elderly people and you've got the ability to switch the train into whichever direction <laughs> it's going. As a human being you would have so many thoughts, considerations, kind of like what do I choose? Whereas a <laughs> A machine, if it was taught a certain way, would just be like that. It would just be like, I'll, I'll just make that decision. That is correct. And um, there were a few years ago, there was an autonomous vehicle driving in, in California. And the driver had actually sort of disconnected mentally from the driving, thinking it's taking it over, it's doing fine. And um, 
as it was driving along, the woman entered the road pushing a baby carriage. Well, the AI had been taught to recognize people in the crosswalk, but it hadn't been taught to recognize a baby buggy. Oh. And consequently, it didn't break. Oh. Um, now, that feature has since been corrected, but at that point in time, when they were training the AI for the autonomous vehicles, this is early in the stages, mm. they were thinking more in the sense of human characteristics, or a car entering the cross, you know, entering, turning in the wrong place, or not obeying a red light, or a human entering the crosswalk prematurely. Mm. It didn't train it to recognize a baby buddy. It just shows how much data you need to input into these systems for them to start to really recognize the world as humans see it, as opposed to just yes and no, this is what a robot does. Absolutely correct. One of the most difficult things, I was telling you that in Japan, they're trying to create humanoid uh, robots. Think about tying your shoes and all of the complex steps that go simply into, you put on your trainers or sneakers as we call them, and you actually go through the process of tying them. That is probably a, a 10,000 different minute actions you take. And each one of those individual actions would have to be trained into an artificial intelligence. Gosh, yeah, amazing. And the same thing would apply with any decision that we make, um, whether it's, do I make, an, you know, making investments, health decisions, um, decisions about insurance policies. It's, it, it's, it's more complex than we would, we as humans at this moment can grasp. Yeah, it's going to be amazing to see like how AI progresses over the period of time. As you say, if it's that complex to tie your shoes, then yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, I think we, we humans, we are absolutely amazing at creating things. And many of these things changed the way we live, whether it was the invention of the automobile, doing away with, you know, horse-drawn carriages, or AI. We invented the automobile, it gave us unprecedented mobility, but it also gave us unprecedented pollution. Yes. When we we get very excited about these new innovations, mm. we and we only discover later all of the unintended consequences. Very much a case of uh, act now, then think of the consequences. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is that going to be the same for AI? Then we kind of just say, yeah, let's just uh, let these machines do all this stuff, and we'll see what happens when robots take over the world later. <laughs> I, I, I think that's pretty much the stage where we are at this point. Um, is, you know, we're going to throw all this stuff in the black box and, and then we're going to see where it goes. And well, just like the baby buddy incident I mentioned earlier, we'll fix it once it happens. Yeah, definitely one of those, uh, yeah, plan. Yeah, well, well, we'll think about it when the worst happens. Um, so if I, I'm, I'm just very conscious of time. I'm just enjoying chatting to you so much. <laughs> but I, I am very conscious of your time. Um, what I always really like to ask authors, um, if there is a favourite part or sort of phrase of your book that you wouldn't mind reading out to our listeners, just kind of like a little, I don't know, cheeky sneak peek. 
would that would that be okay? <laughs> I I will I, I I will give you two, and and these are not from me. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I have to say that, but I have some people that I admire, and one of them is is the late physician physicist Stephen Hawking, if you remember him. Of course, yes. And he had a quote, and I, it's in my book, so I'm going, but I'm going to use it here and, and give it back to you because I loved it. He said, "Creating effective artificial intelligence could be the greatest event in the history of our civilization, or the worst. We just don't know." So we cannot know if we'll be infinitely helped by AI, ignored by it, sidelined, or conceivably destroyed by it. Which is a very gloomy picture of, of AI. <laughs> um, he, he really was not a, a friend of AI. But I will, can I add one more quote? Because this is from another favorite professor of mine at Stanford University named Peter Stone. Is it slightly more positive? <laughs> it's slightly more positive than this, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but it gives us maybe a path forward. And it says, like other technology, AI has the potential to be used for good or nefarious purposes. Mm. And we need to have a vigorous and informed debate on how to best steer AI in ways that enrich our lives and our society. We need to encourage creativity in the field. But policies need to be evaluated as to whether they democratically foster the development and equitable sharing of AI's benefits or concentrate power and benefits in the hands of a fortunate few. And since future AI technologies and their effects cannot be foreseen with perfect clarity, we need to be continually reevaluating our policies in the context of the observed societal changes and the evidence we retrieve from field systems. Slightly more positive. <laughs> Slightly more positive, but two very powerful quotes. And um, as I say, I'm very conscious of time. It has been amazing. It has been amazing actually chatting to you. I know I'm overrunning, but it has been amazing having you on the no, show. No, no, you are not. And I'm, and I'm thoroughly enjoying <laughs> this. Uh, I, I feel like we haven't even begun to touch the surface of this. There's so um, much more we can talk about. We're going to have to have, basically what I've just said is I'm going to have to have you back on again. Um, but just to our listeners, this was um, Professor, Ju uh, Professor Julie Meehan, and we're talking about her book, Artificial Intelligence, Ethical, Social and Security Impacts for the Present and the Future. And you can get that on itgovernancepublishing.co.uk. Um, Professor Julie, it has been an absolute honour to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. And it has been my pleasure, Cammy. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Cami. You can buy Artificial Intelligence Ethical, Social and Security Impacts for the Present and the Future from our website. That's it for this time. As ever, you can get in touch with us either by leaving a comment on the blog or via Twitter at ITGovPod, that's my account, or at ITGovernance. We'll return in a fortnight, but until then, our archive is on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And you can find everything you need to implement and maintain cybersecurity defence in depth on our website, itgovernance.co.uk. Thank you.